Okay. So last week we were in, we left this Genesis narrative with Jacob going to find a wife in his mom's, kind of his mom's family, his distant family. So, so Jacob travels, he, he ends in, lands in um, the family of Laban. And Laban had two daughters. Rachel was the one he wanted to marry, so he agreed to work seven years to, to earn her hand in marriage and then is tricked on the wedding night. We don't know how this happens. We don't know. They have candles. We don't know what happens. He wakes up to another woman and, and then is tricked, not tricked, but kind of convinced to work another seven years to have, have both, both wives. So, he's, so that's 14 years he's working to have these two wives. And then he's convinced to stick around another six years. And so we know that, that he was there for about 20 years. And, it's, and it says um, that during this time he was constantly deceived and cheated um, by Laban. In fact, Jacob accuses him at some point of changing his wages ten different times. And so in a lot of ways Jacob is, is kind of getting a dose of his, own, of his own medicine. The deceiver is being deceived. So in chapter 31, we pick up. So we're gonna, tonight, we're going to be just walking through chapters 31 through 35. And probably the best way to follow along is just, if you have a Bible with you, is to just kind of, as I, as I walk through the chapter, is to kind of follow with me. We'll, we'll stop and read large sections kind of throughout, but, but for the most part, I'm going to be kind of telling the story, and I'm going to try to do it as fast as I can. Um, so in chapter 31, God tells God tells Jacob to get his family, and it's time to go, to go back to, to where he's from. And so he does, and he, he does it in a time when Laban didn't know that they were leaving. And it takes Laban three days to figure out that they're gone, and so Laban gets some people, gets his men together, and they chase him down, and they catch him, and there's this big kind of confrontation um, over a couple things. One, he's like, hey, you just left and you didn't tell me, and you took my daughters, and you took my grandkids, and you know, and you stole these idols from my, from my tent. And Joseph's like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, check all of our possessions. And if you, whoever is stolen something, they're dead. Well, little, little does he know that Rachel, his beloved wife, has, has stolen these two idols from, from her dad's tent. And the reason is, we don't exactly know. The text doesn't say why she stole them. It does, the text does describe a little bit of animosity that, that Leah and Rachel have towards their dad for the way he's treated them and, and Joseph, Jacob throughout this whole time. And so, so anyway, we, we don't know exactly why she, she does it, but he, he searches the tents, can't find them. Searches Rachel's tent, can't find it because Rachel's hiding it under the camel and she sits, on, hiding it in the pack of a camel and she sits on the camel and she says, sorry, Dad, I can't get up because I'm having my period. Literally, it's in the Bible. It's, it's the weirdest. So, so she, she convinces him not to make her get down, and therefore he can't find the idols, and then so Jacob's just ticked. Like, so here you are, chasing me down, accusing me of stealing stuff. I didn't do anything. Plus you've been cheating me and deceiving me this whole time. So they have this big, angry kind of back and forth. But then it, the, the chapter ends with them kind of settling and going, okay, all right, we're just gonna we're just gonna let bygones be bygones. You go your way, I'll go my way, and they actually make this pillar, set up this pillar to kind of represent the peace um, in this relationship. But all of this, I think, is is it is is just kind of highlighting that Jacob is 
all this time, this 20 years, he's been cheated and, and deceived and robbed of certain things and blamed for certain things. And, and, and for all intents and purposes, Jacob should literally have nothing to his name. But the reality is he has a whole lot to his name. And Laban knows it. He's got wives. He's got 11 sons. He's got all this stuff. And so the, kind of the point of the, I think the point of this whole narrative is, yeah, you, God has been watching over me. God has been taking care of me. And we'll actually get to see um, what he thinks about God here in just a moment. But So 32 begins. And 30, chapter 32 is one of those chapters in the Bible that I, I kind of find myself returning to because I think it has some significance to it. But these next two chapters, 32 and 33 of Genesis, um, Jacob is going to have two different encounters that are life-changing that should be life-ending. Um, he, he literally is going to have two encounters that he shouldn't survive, but he does. And not only does he live through them, but he's blessed. And then he also becomes a new, nam, a new ma- man with a new name. And so, it, it's, it's again, it's this continual story. God is blessing Jacob. So Jacob leaves this confrontational meeting with Laban, his angry father-in-law, in order to meet his angry brother, Esau, who for all we know, still wants to kill him. So you think your holiday reunions are awkward. Um, This one's a pretty bad one. So we're going to pick it up in in Genesis 32, starting verse 3. Okay, so I'm going to read. Genesis 32, 3-8. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now, and I have oxen and donkeys and flocks, male servants and female servants, I sent to tell my Lord in order that I, um, and I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Um, and Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. So he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then then the the camp that is left will be able to escape. So Jacob sends a messenger, sends this message, Hey, Jacob's coming to meet you. He's got all this stuff. He wants to bless you, blah, blah, blah. And all the message he gets back is, Yeah, Esau heard you. And um, he's coming with 400 men. Um, And so all he sees is, violent uh, violent ha- attack happening you know that's kind of the indication here so he gets strategic divides his camp up thinks at least he'll be able to save some of it um, but but then what happens next is is a real indication of what's taken place in Jacob's life for the last 20 years uh, because I think I think this is true and this can be taken too far but I, I do think it's true that if you want to know a lot about a person listen to their prayers right listen to Listen to how they talk to God. Listen to the kinds of things that they pray about. And you can learn a lot about a person. You can actually learn, you can learn um, even more about what they think about God and who they think God is by listening to the prayers. Every time in the Old Testament, every time there's a prayer, somebody who is having a conversation with God, my ears always perk up because I want to know, like, how, how do they talk to God? And is it, does it match up with how I talk to God? You know? And so... This is a really early one. Genesis 32, yeah, Genesis 32. We're early on in the story and you already see this 
this, this desperate cry for help, this, this conversation that Jacob has with God. Um, and so I'm going to read it. It's in, it's in uh, verses 9 through 12. And Jacob said, O God, my father, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I, might, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your, to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, and he may come and attack me, the mothers and the children. But you said, I will surely do good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for its multitude. So, there, there's a few elements in, in Old Testament prayers that I've noticed as I've kind of listened and kind of read them separately and held them next to each other and, and go, wow, there's some, there's some similarities here. And so I want to give you a, f- a few that I see that, that are happening here. Um, just elements of Old Testament prayer. You can write that down if you want. Um, first, there's, there's a proclamation of who God is. He's the God of their father Abraham. He's the God of Jacob. In other words, He's the God who's been speaking and providing and revealing Himself to us for years. So it's a proclamation of an, an understanding of who God is. And then the next one is a confession of sin or a confession of need or a confession of limitation. Um, which we see here. And then there's a recognition of what God has done. This is God. This is what you have done. He, he talks about, you've provided all this. I came with a staff, and now I have two camps. You've done all this. And then the last, this is an interesting one. There's always this reminding God of what He said. And it sounds a little, maybe pretentious to us, to be like, oh, so you have to remind God. You know, He, does, he doesn't forget. No, that's, that's not what it is. It's more of, Joseph, Jacob restating um, what he believes God will do because God is a God who keeps His word. So, so the, these elements are, seem to be consistent through, throughout these prayers and this is a really great example of one. So Jacob is a different man here. He's a, he's a different dude than he was 20 years ago when he has this encounter with God and he's like, alright God, if you say you're going to do all this stuff then I'll, then I'll do what you ask if you, you know, if you say it. So, so Jacob is getting ready for this potentially violent encounter with Esau. And he has another encounter. In fact, it's like more of a wrestling match with God. So we'll pick up a story in, in verse 22 of chapter 30, 32. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that they had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of, out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the, day was bro- for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be, be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, 
Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of the hip of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. What? Um, so that last that last sentence is the author, right? Is reminding the people of Israel of the the story, right? So remember, the the whole book of of Genesis is just this covenant reminder of God's covenant with His people, and so. Um, so this, that verse is just a reminder. This is why we do. This is why we do this. It's because of this moment right here. So the author is kind of pointing back. So what? So what's happening here? What is? The, who is this man that he's wrestling with? Um, what is the point of this wrestling match? What's happening here? And then why does he think he's seen God face to face? Those are good questions that we'll talk about later. Um, ch- chapter thirty-three, though. So whatever, whatever is happening in chapter 33, Drew's going to get up later and kind of talk more about this story, but whatever's happening in 32, we know something, something major changes. We can tell in, in his prayers, and we can tell in this, in this encounter with God, with God somehow that, that, that God is doing something. God is changing something. And so he enters into chapter 33, which is now where he gets to encounter his brother Esau. And, and so the meeting does not go as Jacob expects it will go. So G, here, here's how, how it kind of goes. Jacob sees Esau coming, and he decides to split up his family into three groups. He puts his servant and, and their uh, two, two servant girls, I think, and, and their kids in, one, in the first group. And then he puts Leah and, and her children in the second group. And he puts um, Rachel and Joseph in the last group. And Jacob goes to the very front of the group. And so I want you to picture this, these two grown men. So J- Jacob sees Esau coming. And as, he, as, he's, as Jacob is going to Esau, he bows down seven times. So picture, he, he sees him and he goes and he bows down. He gets up and he sees him and he goes and he bows down. This seven times. So by the time that they meet, um, it's, a, it's a pretty powerfully emotional moment. So you can even tell. It says they greet each other, they run to each other, they brace each other. Um, it says, Esau falls on his neck. I have no idea what that means. I assume that means it's a hug of some sort, affectional. It talks about them kissing each other, weeping. In other words, there was, there was grace and there was forgiveness in this, in this encounter. And so th- they have this inner, inner interaction back and forth, and, and Jacob convinces Esau to take, take some of these gifts that uh, God has blessed him with, and so they decide, so Esau relents and says, okay, I'll take them, even though I don't need them, I'll take them. And then um, they kind of split and go separate ways. And just when we think the story isn't weird enough, chapter 34. Um, Chapter 34 is a pretty weird story. Uh, We don't have time to get into it. It, it, I think it fits into a larger story that I'll explain here in a second, but needless to say, the, the, the story has in it one of Jacob's daughters being raped by a man in this local area that they're staying. Um, it has Jacob's sons getting pretty ticked about this and then convincing the, the, the entire city, the, all the grown men in this entire city to be circumcised in order, in order for this arranged marriage to happen. 
which is all a trick. And then J Jacob's sons, after they're circumcised and they're recovering, goes in and kills all these men and then takes all their stuff and all their families. So, what is happening here? Uh, we don't know, actually. It doesn't really explain... What's that? There, I'm not going to draw a picture of that. No. no I'm not, I am going to draw a picture, though. Um, and, and it's a picture that helps me in, in cases like this, because there's a couple of these. Like with, with Rachel stealing these idols, and with this particular story in chapter 34, it's like, okay, what is going on? How do we... What is happening here? Is, is this a story of Jacob having people in his family that are deceptive, which could be the case, which is like a constant reminder of like, yeah, yeah, Jacob, you got, you got the inheritance, but you went about it in a pretty deceptive way, and so that's just going to be like part of your story. It's going to be in your family. It's going to travel with you. Is this a story of God messing, dealing with sinful, broken people and accomplishing His purposes? I think it probably is. Or is this a story of God protecting Jacob and his family from intermarrying with local people, because he's called them to be set apart and not to intermarry. And so, um, is, this a, is this an act of holiness? Is this righteous anger? What's happening here? Um, yeah, I don't know. So, here's what helps me. Whenever I'm reading a text um, and I don't know what's happening, so there are, there are certain verses of the Bible, certain stories of the Bible where we know we can hit dead center on what that means. Like, anything that has to do with the, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the point of Jesus, I mean, all those things, we have tons of verses that help us understand exactly what is happening. God is very clear. There's no, there's no wishy-washy stuff. We know, he, we know He died. We know why. We know all these things. We can get dead center. There's other verses that are, we can get pretty close. Yeah, there's this option. There's this option. We think this happened because of this context, because of this literary device, whatever. And there's some stories like this one where it might be like closer to here. And we're like, yeah, I don't know, it's in there. Nobody talks about it. Nobody explains it. You know, and we talked at the very beginning of this year about how there are certain things that are left un unexplained because it's a high-context society, right? So, that, so the author is writing to a group of people who all understand what's going on and they would have understood why this story's there. So it could be one of those cases. Needless to say, it's an awkward story. But regardless, we move on into chapter 35, and Jacob is now, God tells Jacob to go back to Bethel. So Bethel is this, this place, I don't, I don't know if you remember last week, where he has this encounter with God, and he sees this stairway and the angels, and, and God speaks to him, and he says, I was in the presence of God and didn't know it. That was Bethel. So God tells him to go back to Bethel. He goes there, and God meets him there and, has, and appears to him, reassures him of his new identity, reassures him of the nation that will come from him, and then reassures him of the land that he will give him. And so in, I'll pick up the story in chapter 35, verse 9. It says, God appeared to Jacob again, and when he came from Padam Aran and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob, no longer shall your name be called Jacob. Um, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. 
So that's that's kind of what's happening in chapter 35. The other the other interesting note is the very last verse of chapter 35. Isaac dies, and Esau and Jacob are there burying their father. So we know there's some definitely some healing and some rec- reconciliation that's taking place there. But so what's happening here? I think there's three kind of three things that I take away from this this story as we kind of walk through it. One is that God God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and this family not because they were special, not because they were incredibly faithful people, but simply because He chose to choose them. And that, in fact, scriptures tell us that. The second thing is that God accomplishes His purpose through sinful people, and He is faithful to 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 keep His promises, um, regardless of of even what we do sometimes. And then and then the third thing is that God makes um, makes promises and is faithful to His Word every step of the way. That, that this, this God is reminding us that He's the hero of this story every step of the way. So, we're going to take a break, and then Drew's going to get up and help us understand what happened in chapter 32. So go ahead and take a couple minutes. Um, there are... Three times in the Pentateuch, okay, so that would be the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, three times in the first five books that Moses wrote, in which God calls someone to go to, go to a certain place or allows them to go to a certain place and then attacks them on the way to that place. Um, three very bizarre stories. That, that fit pretty much all of them almost uh, in, in some of the, towards kind of the outer edge of this because there's so little that's told about them and because there's so much that I think back then, like they didn't need explained stuff that just made sense to them, that they just got, that are just hard for us to get our minds around um, that take place. In. But, but three different times, he'll call someone to go to a place and then attack them on the way to, to that place. Uh, one of the times happens in Exodus 4 where after Moses has been living in the land of Midian for 40 years after fleeing Egypt, God shows up to him in a burning bush and tells him to go back to Israel to go set his people free. And then on the way back, it says there in Exodus 4 that uh, he stops at a lodging place on the way, and it says that the Lord uh, comes to him to strike him down, comes to him to kill him. I think the exact words is, Yahweh met him and sought to put him to death. And so there Moses is at this lodging place on the side of the road. He's about to die. Now he's traveling with his wife and his kids. Um, a lot of people kind of forget that part, but he's about to die. And then his wife runs and she circumcises his son. And then she brings the foreskin of his son and goes and touches Moses' foot, which of course is obviously what you do in that situation, <laughs> um, as we all know. Uh, but when that, when that happens, actually, the Lord relents. And, and Moses lives and is allowed to live in that situation. So, odd, right? Bizarre. Um, another time happens when, after Moses has led them out of Egypt, and they're coming into the land of Canaan, um, it is kind of becoming known that this large group of people are flooding into this land, and it's freaking everybody, all the other nations out around them, because they're hearing some of the stories of some of like the miraculous ways that God brought them out of Egypt, so all these people are freaked out. And, and so the king of Moab and, and the country of Midian, they get together and decide, we need to do something about this. We don't know what to do. So they call this kind of famous 
prophet. I'll put prophet somewhat in quotations. He's, he's, it's, it's hard to know. Is he a good guy, a bad guy? He seems to be kind of a bad dude. Um, There's a guy named Balaam who's kind of famous for his ability to communicate with the supernatural and then to actually, they believe, at least kind of cast like incantations or like curses or whatever on, on different people. And so they call Balaam to come and put a curse on the people of Israel. And, and he basically says, I, I can only do that if, whoever this Balaam guy is, he knows who Yahweh is. He's like, I can only do that. That's Yahweh's people. So I can only do that if Yahweh will let me. And, and at first God says no, and, and then they come and ask again, and God says, okay, fine, you can go, but do only what I tell you to do, and no different. And so Balaam starts to go. And on the way there, this, this story you've, you've probably heard of, um, where Balaam is riding his donkey, and on the path there, God, it says, God gets angry at Balaam, and then he sends the angel of the Lord, uh, the angel of Yahweh, who stands there in the path with sword drawn, ready to kill Balaam. Now, Balaam doesn't see him. Only the donkey sees him. And so the donkey goes off the road and out into the field, and Balaam gets mad and hits it. And then, and then another time, they're going through like a narrow place, and the donkey kind of scoots over and crushes his foot, and he gets mad. And then a third time, he goes and he sees the angel, and, and the angel's about to kill him, and the donkey sits down there, and, and Balaam starts like beating it. And then, okay, the donkey turns and talks back to him. <laughs> Okay, it says, why are you beating me? Have I ever been a bad donkey? And I love Balaam's just like, well, no. Uh, Balaam just like starts talking back and having the conversation. Um, but, but then it says the Lord opened his eyes to see the angel and, and finds out that the angel is actually there to kill him. And then the third story takes place right here where God calls Jacob out of the land of Haran back to home and as he's on the other side of the Jordan River there and, he, and he'll soon be making his way into the land of Canaan, into the promised land where God has called him to go. God shows up and attacks him in the middle of the night. And it is uh, an odd story, maybe not as odd as the other two, but it's still strange um, that God calls these people to this and then actually comes and attacks them in the middle of that um, Without getting too far into it, Genesis 32, if you want to look back there, we'll, we'll just examine that story briefly um, to kind of get our heads around what's going on. And then we'll see if we can't tie these three stories together and see, see what they're trying to show us. Um, it says there in verse 24 of 32, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So Scott asked the question, who is this man exactly? And, and I said, you, you, you kind of know, sort of. We actually, nobody knows for sure. Um, it could be Yahweh himself. That's what some people think. This is God himself, because after all, Jacob says when it's done, I saw Yahweh, I saw God face to face and did not die. And so people think that's that's probably who this is exactly. Um, but, but we don't know that for sure. There are a number of times in the Old Testament where a messenger of God, an angel that is, will show up on behalf of God, and that's spoken of as like facing God himself. 
um, that, that, that the actions of the messenger, this was true back then, and actually it's true today, the actions of the messenger are kind of like, can be identified with the actions of the person who sent them. So today, like we might, you might hear on the news something like, the president told Russia today that they would not stand for acts of aggression and da 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 Well, what really probably happened was like the U.S. ambassador to Russia actually told Russia that. We all know what we mean when we say the president told him because the, the ambassador was acting on behalf of the president. And so he, he speaks for the president. He, his actions are the actions of the president. That's, that's what sometimes happens here. Hosea, actually, in his prophecy, tells this story, um, kind of recounts it at least, in Hosea uh, chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. And there he says, Jacob strove with God. And then he says, he strove with the angel and prevailed. So he says two things back to back. He strove with God and he strove with the angel and prevailed. Meaning, more than likely, this is the angel of the Lord. This is the angel of God that Jacob is wrestling with. Either way, it's, it's clearly a supernatural person, which makes it strange when we hear that uh, that he could not prevail against Jacob. How in the world can either God or the angel of Yahweh not be able to prevail against a mere mortal, against a man? Well, I don't think exactly, obviously, it's not that he's not strong enough. I mean, a, a mere touch, and he's able to put Jacob's hip out of socket. So it's not like he can't overpower him. It's not like Jacob is just too tough. I, I think the idea there is not that Jacob is winning when he says he can't prevail. It's that he, he's... Uh, Jacob will not give up. He's not overcoming Jacob. He's not making Jacob stop no matter what happens. Even when he touches him and puts his hip out of socket, says Jacob will not let go. He, he sits there and clings to him and, and holds on to them this whole time. Um, and so that's what I think seems to be happening. And then we can see that in that next verse, verse 26. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Um, so here there's a recognition in Jacob that he's dealing with someone greater than him. Probably he, he gets some level of supernatural because uh, the way it works back then is the greater always blesses the lesser. So when Jacob asks for a blessing, he's acknowledging, you're better than me, you're, you're greater than me, so please bless me, he says to him. And the man asks his name. Why does the man ask his name? God knows his name already. Why does he ask Jacob what his name is? Verse 28, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Um, so Jacob tells him what his name is, and right after telling him, God changes his name. You heard that, Israel, we, we'd say that. When you hear El in a name, that means God is in the name. Um, so it either means strives with God, or it means God strives. Uh, but, the, but the reasoning behind it is the same. Because you have striven with both God and men, you have wrestled with, you have, you have uh, been striving with God and against man, and you have prevailed, or you have succeeded so then Jacob asks him for his name, and he says, Why do you ask? I think he might be saying to Jacob, Don't you know? We've met before. 
And, and, and it's after this that Jacob is able to say, I have seen God face to face. I mean, that, that, at least, if, if nothing else, seems to almost turn the light, the light bulb on for Jacob. Um, afterwards, he recognizes what has happened. So these three stories in which God sins and then attacks on the way. Why? What's the common denominator between these three things um, that causes these bizarre activities to happen? Um, Here's what I think they are. From what we can see with the Moses story, God's not changing his mind. He, He doesn't go, hey, Moses, I want you to go down and set my people free, and then on the way, God goes, actually, never mind, I don't like that, I'm going to kill you, okay? That's that's not what he's saying when he goes and attacks them. Actually, there's something that's not right in Moses' life that needs to be changed in that moment. Some people debate over what that is. I I think the most likely likely is, is kind of what you actually saw. God had said that his people, his covenant people from, from the day of Abraham on would be marked by circumcision. That was part of their covenant with him. And now he's sending Moses down to lead his people and he's going to be the one who will deliver the law and tell them what God is like and Moses himself has not followed the covenant with, that, that Abraham set forward all those years ago with God or that God set forward with Abraham. And so I, I think that maybe what's it. God's going, I'm sending you Moses but I'm not sending you when you're not even faithful to the covenant. I'm not sending you like this. Something's going to need to change for that to happen. Um, With Balaam, the point of the story seems to be that Balaam plans to go, and yet he's going to kind of use his own special uh, methods of divination that he's used to. Like, Like he would have his own ways of seeking omens and doing certain things to get in touch with the spiritual world. Things that really make Balaam look like the one who's powerful and in control here. And I think when he goes on his way, God said, no, I told you when I sent you that you do only what I told you to do. And, and in order to kind of make the point clear, he goes, by the way, I can make a donkey say what I want. So, like, I don't, I don't need you and your special divination, Balaam. I don't need you and your really cool powers that everyone's impressed with to do what I want to happen. And so, Balaam, yeah, I'm letting you go, but we're not going until this is changed. You're not going, in, you're not going like this. Um, and then you have this issue where Jacob makes his way down to these things, down to the, the Jordan, and on the way there, he's attacked by God, and, and God stops and, and um, meets him there and approaches him, and I, I think actually God is saying the same thing to Jacob that he said to Moses and Balaam. Yes, you're going, but first we're going to deal with this. You're not going in this condition. So what is the this what is the thing that God says is going to have to change before anything helps? I, 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 think, I think the thing that needs to change is Jacob himself. Uh, I think Jacob's character is what needs to change. Jacob's uh, M.O., the way he always operates, is going to change. So much of Jacob's life has been built, in or built around scheming to secure his own place. He lies and or he, he cheats his brother out of his birthright and then he lies and deceives his father uh, to get uh, 
to, to get the blessing from him. And then as he goes off, he, he finds ways to procure wives. And then he starts to get all these um, goats and animals from, uh, from Laban, actually, as he's working through. And, and the text tells us actually God was blessing him. But the whole time, Jacob had his own little plan that he was working that made it look like he was the one who was kind of making it happen to get all of these animals, even though it was God that was blessing him. And now he's coming down and he's going to meet Esau. And he's thinking of every angle he can bring um, to try and figure out a way to appease Esau as he's going there. And, and he begins to send out these different delegations, but I think it's beginning to dawn on Jacob that he's finally in a spot where there's no planning, there's no scheming, there's no conniving that gets him out of this one. I mean, if it's just him, like he can get away. But he can't, he can't protect his wives and his children. He can't protect all his belongings. They're too small or slow moving. They're too large of a target. They're too, um, too easy to attack and too defenseless. And he finds himself crying out to God in desperation, the prayer that Scott just went over with you guys from him. He cries out and, and begs God, and then God shows up and starts wrestling with him, and Jacob holds on to him, basically says, I'm not letting you go until I know that you'll take care of me. I'm not, I'm not letting go until I know you'll bless me. I'm not letting go until I know you're going with me. And he's finally at this point of desperation. I think that's why God asks Jacob his name. God knows his name. But he's not asking Jacob to tell his name. He's asking Jacob to confess who he is. And I think Jacob, with a sigh in the middle of that moment, goes, I'm Jacob. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the deceiver. I'm the guy who begs, steals, lies, cheats his way to the top, whatever it takes. That's who I am. I think, I think God's asking for a confession. And when Jacob finally says it, I'm Jacob, God says, I think essentially, you're right, but not anymore. And it's in that moment when Jacob confesses his name that God says, but I'm giving you a new one today. Now you are Israel. Now you are one who has struggled with God. Now you are one who would not let go. And I will bless you in that. Gives him a new name in those things. I think what God says to him is, let's be done with all the scheming. Let's be done with the way you've always operated. Let's be done with this foolish self-sufficiency that thinks that you've got it all together, that you're the one who's kind of taking care of yourself with being the master of your own fate. And now I wish I could say uh, that after this, like everything is completely new for Jacob. That like he just walks away and this is, is a completely different person. It's, it's not the case. When you go on a read, he still has flaws, mistakes, but there, there seems to be a fairly clear difference in the man. That something has changed that something starts to look different in him, the way he acts and, and how he'll have everyone bury their old gods and idols and get rid of them and go, and we're going, we're going with Yahweh now. He will be our God. He's the one that we're going to follow. There is a difference in those things, and it's because God has met him in the moment of desperation and has changed him in it. It's interesting to me, actually, that up to this point, the two times that Jacob has encountered God have been in the places where he's most desperate. When he's on the run from Esau, and he's left his homeland for the first time, going to a strange place he's never been, and he's there sleeping on the side of the road, wondering what happens next. And he sees the stairway with the angels coming and realizes he encounters God. And then when he's about to meet Esau and thinks he's going to die, and he's in desperate straits, and God comes and reveals himself to him. The text tells us 
that when Jacob walks away from this, he walks away with a limp. We don't know this for sure, um, but I'm pretty sure he holds that limp for the rest of his life. I mean, in a day before like modern medicine and the ability to like deal with those things, more than likely Jacob will limp for the rest of his years which would be really difficult in a day before wheelchairs and elevators and cars and all of those things. He, he has a difficult life in front of him. It's not going to be easy. But do you know what would be worse than walking around with a limp for the rest of your life? What would be worse than that is walking around upright having never encountered the Lord. What would be worse then having to walk around with this handicap your whole life would be to walk around fully healthy and to have never been changed by Yahweh. That would have been a far worse fate for Jacob by far. I don't know if you ever think about like what, what would be the worst thing that could ever happen in your life. I sometimes do this sometimes at night when I'm laying in bed. I don't know if that's, that says something weird about me. Um, and sometimes I lay in bed and just think like, what would... What would my life be like if my wife died? Like if, or, or if one of my kids died, like what, what would I do? Or, or like honestly, I go worst case scenario. If, if in a moment, if in a car accident, my whole family was taken from me, um, what would I do in that moment? What, what is the worst thing that could ever happen to you? Do you ever think about that? It's the worst thing. I don't know what it is. But I can tell you something worse than whatever's in your brain right now. The only thing worse than that would be for your life to go smooth and perfect and for you to have so much success and security that you never recognize your need for God. The only thing worse would be for things to go so well that you're able to ignore Him because maybe you're not a believer but you feel like you're a pretty good person without Him and what do I need all that religion? What do I need all that God stuff for? Because things are working out pretty well for me. Or to be a person who grows up in a Christian home and, you know, is a Christian and is able to give God lots of lip service, but, but secretly kind of feels like everything you got is a result of your own wise planning and your own giftedness and your own greatness, and you're able to kind of keep God over on the side for most of your life. That would be far worse than any tragedy that could ever come your way. And I'm not saying that bad things have to happen to you, and I'm certainly not wishing for bad things to have to happen to you, but there are things that are far worse than an easy life. I hope that, um, I hope you'll never have to, but the worst than ever having to have an easy life, or worse than having an easy life, is never encountering God. Worse than having an easy life is never being in a place desperate enough to see your actual need for Him. And I don't want bad things to happen to you, but if they do, and they probably will, I hope that you'll have the ability to see that God, even in His mercy, will take the, the worst things that ever happened to you, maybe things that are happening to you right now, and has the ability to use those things to change you, has the ability to use those things to give you a new name, has the ability to give you a new kind of character and a new kind of heart, one that is formed into the image of Jesus, His own Son. There are worse things than tragedy. Worse is to never have that happen in you. I, I hope it can happen without it. But if not, um, be open to what God may be wanting to do in your life through even some of the hardest and most difficult things. 
Let me take a moment. I think the best way for me to kind of transition into what we want to do next is actually probably just to pray for that to happen. And then we'll, and then I want to um, introduce Eric to you and let, let him share a little bit. So let me do that real quick. God, I just pray this, not knowing what is going on in anybody's life, um, or at least not knowing what's going on in everybody's life. I'll say that. I don't, but you do. Um, and I, I certainly don't know what may happen in the future. My prayer, Lord, is this, that we would all be the kinds of people who recognize our need for you with or without tragedy, with or without hardship in our life or difficult things. But if you see fit for that, if you see that it is necessary to allow difficulty, then, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see um, how you want to work in those things to make us a different kind of person, to change us, that, um, that you would make us like you in the process of that. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, we, we've moved quick tonight because we, we wanted to make sure there's time for uh, you guys to hear a little bit from Eric. So I want to I have Eric actually come up here and share a little bit as Ryan has already introduced our new guest tonight. Um, uh, Eric's actually, well, dude, I'll just let you tell your story a little Love bit. So. All right. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be 